I had a great lunch with a friend about a week and a half ago. And he was telling me that these messages were helpful for him. That thinking about what the world needs, it really connected with him because he sees how broken the world is and the idea that we can grow as Christians uh, and our faith can actually be what the world needs was inspiring to him. And then after he shared that, he added that it wasn't exactly the same for his spouse. Uh, she's also a person of faith. But when she looks at the trouble in the world, to her it seems, well, it seems overly optimistic to imagine that any one of us could really have an impact because the world is just that broken. Uh, he shared very simply, from her perspective, only God can do anything really. It's just that bad. It struck me that I bet she's not the only person who sometimes feels that. Am I right about that? In part, she's right. But then, in another sense, she's actually wrong. Let me say what I mean. Uh, the trouble that is beneath all of the misery that people inflict upon each other in this world, the deep trouble, is actually too deep for any one of us to do anything about. The Bible calls it sin. That humankind is turned away from God and because of that, we do all kinds of monstrous things to each other and the truth about it is you and I don't have the power to fix that. No one does. The only one who does is God. The peace that the world needs, the righteousness that has to be present, the reconciliation that's required to set things right, the, the, the power of the love that would be needed to change things, only God has that power. And she's right about that. But here's why I say she's also wrong to say that we can't ourselves have a hand in bringing things uh, to a different place. Listen now. The truth about God is the way that God has decided to bring people to himself so they're changed is through the ordinary faith of men and women like you and me. That is actually how God has decided to do it. The problem, which is too great for us to fix and can only be fixed by God, requires simply that people come to God and see the truth about God, and when that happens, they are totally transformed from the inside out so that they're different in the world. And I know for sure some of you have experienced that yourselves. Am I right about that? Like there was a day when you came to God and you saw him and everything changed. That's how the world will change. And the way God has set it up is, is that he means to use you and me, in the world where we find ourselves, so that we can be the ones that he uses to bring people to himself. That's what God has decided to do. And here's, here's the very simple fact, okay? The way it will happen, that people will see God when they look at us, okay, get this, is when we look like God, ourselves. That may seem like a strange thing to say, it may seem impossible that we ourselves could look like God to others. The truth about it, and this is true historically, and it's true in our own experience, is that it is entirely possible for men and women who trust Jesus to live in such a way that when others look at them, what they see is accurate information about what God is like. And when that happens, God uses them to bring people to himself, and that changes the world. Uh, what I want to share with us this morning is the fifth virtue in Peter's list of the virtues which make faith work. And for today, it is the virtue of godliness. And our teacher is going to be Paul. 
We've learned from him uh, in the weeks past. In a small letter which Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy, we find guidance on how to grow this particular virtue in such a way that God uses us to change the world. And and in the first letter to Timothy, if you want to find your way there, uh, in the first letter to Timothy, Paul instructs this young man on how to grow this virtue so that he's useful to God in the world. Timothy was a young man who, uh, like many of us, came to faith because of the faith of his mother and his grandmother. And when Paul looked at this young man, what he knew is he had tremendous potential to be useful in the world. And so Paul guided him on how to grow so that he would be used by God. Now, I want to get you in the right place to hear what Paul teaches, okay? The expectation that he has about you, and this is what I have about you as well, is is that if you have faith now, if you trust Jesus, if you're on that path, wherever you are, God wants you to grow so that your faith is something which changes you and which he uses to change the world. And the only way you get there is if you're ready to get to work. Okay, here's the work that Paul sets before Timothy and before us this morning. This is 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. Listen to what he writes there. Train yourself in godliness. For while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise both for the present life and for the life to come. Paul instructs Timothy by employing an athletic metaphor. And we've seen this in the weeks past. It's one of the most effective ways a teacher back then has for helping people think about how to grow, to grasp a metaphor from the world of physical training and use that to teach about training for following Jesus. Okay, so here now, you picture your own life of faith. Where are you in that journey? And now bring into your mind the image of athletic training. Uh, In Paul's day, when Timothy wrote, train yourself, excuse me, when Paul wrote, train yourself, Timothy surely would have had in mind the gymnasium. Uh, The Greek word uh, which is translated train here is the word gymnasium. That's where we get our word from. In Timothy's day, uh, young men and women, as they were growing up and being educated, uh, a major part of their formation would have been gymnasium. Uh, When I ask my little children uh, what their favorite part of school is, they always say the same thing. It's either lunch or phys ed, all right? Same thing here. They had phys ed as a part of their routine. One of the most prominent uh, activities that young men and women were trained for was wrestling, uh, wrestling, sparring in a ring. Uh, Very simply, there were rules for preparing to be an effective wrestler which Paul wants to be in Timothy's mind so that he understands how to grow as a follower of Jesus. Okay, listen. Three areas of training, okay? There was obviously the physical aspect of training for wrestling, but there was also the emotional preparation required as well as the mental training. Okay, let's start there with the mental training. In order to be an effective wrestler, you had to learn the rules. You had to know what was within and without of bounds for what you could do to to work uh, to defeat your opponent. You had to learn the strategies that you had to defend against and also offensive strategies, the kind of holds or moves that you could use to pin your opponent to the mat. That was a matter of preparing the mind for the activity of wrestling. Now, I want you to think about what it means to follow Jesus 
and see with me that part of becoming an effective disciple is having your mind trained. You have to learn some things. And we've been working on this together in the weeks past. But again today, I want you to know this, that in order for us to be effective followers of Jesus, our minds need to be trained. There are things for us to learn. That's the mental preparation. Now, every young person would also have known in Paul's day that preparation for wrestling would have required emotional conditioning. This is critical. In order to keep going in a match, the wrestler has to believe that he has a chance. If he gets into the ring and his emotions tell him, you're going to fail, guess what's gonna happen? He's going to fail, right? If he feels afraid, if she lacks courage, if she tells herself when she gets in there, oh no, hope is lost, my opponent is stronger than I am. Even if that opponent is weaker, she is totally doomed. And that, that's because her emotions have to be engaged. And we don't often think like this, But the truth about our emotions is that we can actually grow to have more control over them than we used to. Have you ever felt like you're a victim of your feelings? You can actually train yourself not to be so pushed around by what your heart tells you. That's what it was like in the ancient art of training for wrestling. A good coach would teach those wrestlers to believe and be hopeful and to be courageous. You have to train your emotions if you're gonna grow physically. It's exactly the same to be an effective disciple. And then, of course, the third area is physical training. In order to become a good wrestler, you had to be strong. You had to exercise your body. You had to be fit. Your diet had to be uh, managed. You had to have to have the right amount of sleep. And the truth about being a disciple is it's exactly the same for us as we follow Jesus. Do you understand how important it is for your body to be conditioned in order to follow Jesus effectively. Do you know that? Does some of you know that? Someone? Does one person? <laughs> there was a guy in the first uh, service who had texted me after my message on self-control, and he said to me, self-control is a lot harder for me late at night when I'm too tired. Does anybody else know this? Right? Or it's a lot easier for me to be patient with the people around me when I'm well-fed. If I'm overly hungry, I turn into a real jerk. That's me talking about myself, okay? My physical well-being is also a part of my effectiveness as a disciple. And what we need to do, okay, what Renaissance Church needs to do, and every one of you, is you need to grow a bit, and the way to grow is to work at training yourself mentally, emotionally, and physically for the work that God has for you, okay? Let's look at what Paul says next. The training that he puts before Timothy is not just physical, it is training himself in godliness. Now here we have to be careful because the word godly will sound to most of us like something very different from what Paul had in mind when he wrote it to Timothy, all right? What what do you have in your mind when you think of godliness? Uh, Maybe you picture someone who's in church uh, up front, And he has a very trim haircut, obviously, right? And probably he has a robe on. And and most likely it's a church that doesn't look uh, like a nightclub like this. It's got a very tall uh, ceiling, right? And this person talks with a very holy voice. And this person does every kind of religious thing just right. Knows exactly how to speak in the prayers in a way that sounds mysterious, right? And knows every one of God's rules and never breaks any one of them. That's what godliness is. That's what we might think. And the truth about it is 
There's an historical reason why we tend to think about godliness like that, but it has nothing to do with what Paul meant. When he wrote this to Timothy, there were two communities around him that used that word godliness an awful lot. The Greeks, the ancient Greek philosophers talked about godliness all the time, as did the Jewish community out of which Paul came. And both of those communities meant something different when they said you have to be godly than what Paul means here. Let's spend a little time on this, okay? For the ancient Greeks, godliness meant performing ritual acts of worship when you were in the temple. So a godly person was someone who went to the temple of their city and did whatever the God of that temple wanted them to do. If you've traveled to ancient Greece or Turkey or any of those environments, you'll have seen lots of ancient temples. And in each one, the godly person was the person who went to that temple and when they were there, they performed the rituals that the God of that city or that temple wanted them to perform. Okay, it might have meant you bought the silver statue and then you carried that statue with you and did the right things with that statue when you were at the temple. And we know historically this is what some uh, cults of religion in ancient Greece required. Or maybe it meant that when you went to the temple, you gave just the right amount of money to pay for the expensive temple furnishings. If you did that, you were godly. Or maybe, and there were some severer cults back then where you had to harm yourself or mutilate yourself to please the God. And if you did that in worship at the temple, you were godly. Okay, that's what the Greeks meant by godliness. That is not what Paul meant. Uh, the community from which Paul came was different, the Jewish community. They had their own understanding of godliness. For them, it was not only what a person did in temple. It was more a matter of following every rule as that community had grown to understand what God required of them everywhere you were in life. Uh, for, the, for the Jews of Paul's day, godliness was a person who never broke any rule, no matter how severe the punishment was, they followed every single jot and tittle of the law. Uh, interestingly, if you, find your, if you find yourself with a Bible that has an apocrypha in it, the books that come between the Old and the New Testaments as we refer to them, you'll find examples there of this view of godliness. Fourth Maccabees is one of the books there. In the fifth chapter of that book, a priest, Eleazar, is talking about the excellence of the law and gives a perfect picture of what godliness was to his people when he says, listen to this, that he would sooner have his eyes gouged out and his entrails burned than break one of God's rules. Uh, this is a quote. Get your torture wheels ready and fan the fire more vehemently, he says. I will not be unfaithful to the law in the slightest. This was godliness, a man who followed every single rule exactly. This idea, the Jewish idea and the Greek idea, both of them are in the background when Paul writes this to Timothy, but neither of them are the primary thing that Paul means when he, whoa, where'd it go? When he tells, Paul, go back, when he tells Timothy to train himself in godliness. And now this is for us too, Okay. Paul wants us to train ourselves in godliness. And what he means by that, let me tell you what he means, is actually much broader and deeper than the Greek or the Jewish idea. He means that we should train ourselves so that everywhere we find ourselves and in everything that we do, whether we're in the temple or whether we're even thinking about the law of God, he wants us to train ourselves so that we look like God. 
everywhere we find ourselves in our lives. Everywhere. In every moment, on Sunday here, when we have God's law in our mind, and when we're hanging out with friends on Monday evening, or when we're at work in the middle of the day on Wednesday and we're with our colleagues around the table, or on Friday night and on Saturday afternoon, Paul actually believes, and this is what he wants for Timothy, that it is possible to prepare yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, so that when people look at you, what they see is what God looks like. In the simplest way to put it, to be godly means to look like God. Now, let me clarify, okay? There are some ways which God carries himself, which you will never imitate and you should not try to. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Give up now. You never will be, okay? You're not to try to pursue all mightiness. That's not for you. God is omniscient. God knows everything. You might think that that is something you yourself should pursue. Not at all. God is the judge. You are not. You should not try to judge other people. When you try to judge other people, you look nothing like God because you're mean and you don't understand right from wrong like he does. That's not how you're meant to be like God. But there are many ways that you yourself are called to work at being like God. And what Paul is teaching Timothy here is that it's time to begin training yourself in those ways. Think for a moment about some of the attractive things about the way Jesus carried himself. Uh, if you know the scriptures of the Hebrews, uh, think of some of the beautiful attributes of God which are described there, which are actually within our power to exemplify in our way of being. Now think of this. God is trustworthy. We can work at that. God is faithful. You know what it's like when someone's faithless, right? It's awful. But we can also work at being faithful. God is patient. Over and over again, God waits for his people and, and, and is patient with them. You can be impatient, right? But you can also work at patience. It's not too much to say that when we work at these kinds of things, that we are actually developing lives which will reflect to others the character and the being of God so that when they look at us, what they're seeing is actually what God is like. I know that every one of you has been deeply disappointed and hurt. I know it. Every one of you in here has some memory of a person who, who pretended to speak for God and then they were so ugly and awful and cruel and, and offensive in their way of being with you or others. You think that can't be what God is like and you're absolutely right to think that. But then on the other hand, you have in your memory, many of you, moments where a simple act of grace or kindness from another person moved your heart to think, oh, I wish there was more of that in the world. I'm right, aren't I? Small things. Godliness. Godliness is not just this, this relig religious ritual here. It's not just this obedience to this rule there, but it's a way of carrying oneself in the world. Why should we be godly? Here, Paul guides Timothy to an answer when he writes this. If you look again with me at 1 Timothy 4, 8, he says, while physical training is of some value, he says this, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. 
Physical training is good, but training in godliness holds promise for this present life. Let me tell you how. When you begin to grow to be like God in the world, your life will be better than when your life is not like God's. I promise you this. When you find yourself developing the kind of character the kind of quality of being in the world around you that is like God's life, you will find the joy and the peace and the sense of purpose and satisfaction, the courage and confidence that reflects your being on the path which God made you to be on. And it is good for you now in that way. It holds promise for this present life. Now, the moment you start pursuing godliness because you want to make sure God's happy with you rather than angry with you, that's not the promise for this life. That's a Greek way of thinking about it. No, Paul could never mean that because he knows that God is okay with you because he gave his son Jesus to die for you, because he loves you, because he's filled with grace. You don't have to worry about making God okay with you. That's already happened in Jesus. Don't, don't, don't do that. Or if you start to think, I must be godly, so if I don't follow the rules, I'll be on the wrong side of God's benevolence. Again, no, not so. By grace, you have been saved. Relax. Is it okay to say that in church? Just relax. Take it easy and then joyfully pursue being like God because it holds, present, it holds promise for this present life, but then also for the life to come. You see that? It, it's there, good. It means, it means that when Paul instructs Timothy, he's not only thinking about the, the effect that faith will have on Timothy now, but he's thinking eternally, and listen now. Here's what he's thinking about. Paul's thinking that the world is a mess because it was in the first century like it is in the 21st century. And Paul's thinking what needs to happen is it needs to change. And the way that those people who are far away from God will finally come to know the truth about him is when God's people train themselves themselves in godliness so that they look like God. So that the people who are far away from God and will always be in a mess because of it, they'll finally come to know the truth about God when they look at his people as they are learning to train themselves in godliness. That's why Paul is actually instructing Timothy in this way, and it's the same reason that I'm bringing this before all of us, is that like Paul in relationship to Timothy, what I deeply desire is that we ourselves would begin training ourselves in godliness so that our neighbors and our friends, the strangers around us, and this world which is so broken, will get a glimpse of what God is like when they look at us. That our way of carrying ourselves in the world will show people the truth about what God is like so that they'll come to him and be saved, delivered, knowing the truth, and then they'll become a part of the solution rather than the problem. Does that sound like too much to hope for to you? I hope not. I mean, it's remarkable. Paul says his goal in Timothy, okay? It's based on God's heart. He says, God desires that everyone should be saved. Paul wrote that to Timothy, everyone. Not just some people. God wants everyone to be saved. And he wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the way that happens is when ordinary men and women like you and me practice looking like God in our lives. Uh, have you ever stopped to think how strange it is that here we are in the 21st century and we're still gathered together around a, a movement of faith which had its beginning in a crucified son of a carpenter in, in a, a podunk town uh, that didn't matter at all as one of the outposts of the Roman Empire. Doesn't that seem strange to you? It seemed strange to ancient historians. They couldn't understand how could it be 
that a, a religion should grow up out of a, an apparent failure. A teacher whose followers said he's God, and then he proved it by dying on a cross. What about that? They said he, he rose from the dead, but how on earth did it spread so much? Has that thought ever occurred to you? Some of you have, yeah. That was always vexing to the people in the early Roman Empire because, listen to this, within 100 years of Jesus' death, already the Christian movement had grown so great that it was considered to be one of the four major people groups in the ancient world. And this is all before the World Wide Web. That means information didn't spread fast. Uh, it's remarkable. There's an historical uh, example that I want, I want to share with you. I, I found this uh, to be utterly fascinating and, in fact, quite inspiring. Uh, some of you who have studied ancient philosophy will know the name Aristides. Uh, this was a philosopher who was born in Athens, and he studied, uh, and, and his way of studying humanity was to group people according to their uh, religious affiliation. And in the year 124, so less than 100 years after Jesus died, he wrote a letter to the emperor at the time, who was Hadrian, to try to describe to him this new movement that had begun to grow called the movement of Christians. Okay? The way that Aristides saw the world, there were four groups. There were the barbarians. Uh, according to him, the barbarians were the ones who worshipped dead warriors. Uh, there were, beside the barbarians, the Greeks. And they were the group that worshipped gods who are made. According to Aristides, there were gods who were jealous or who were vindictive, who, who were adulterers, who were murderers of their family members. If you've read the ancient Greek myths, you know these are uh, interesting gods. But those were the Greeks. The third group that he recognized were the Jews, who were obviously a large group at that time. Uh, according to Aristides, they were different than the first two because they worshipped the one God who was the creator and who was almighty. But when he looked at them, what he saw was that they followed these Sabbaths and new moons and feasts and festivals. And so in his mind, they seemed to worship angels or heavenly beings. And then, already in the year 124, he came to the Christians. These are different than all the rest, he writes. They're different because their faith is something which is reflected in every single aspect of the way they live their lives day in and day out. To put it simply, when he looked at them, they looked different from everyone else in the way they lived. I want you to think of this for a moment. Now think of our own day. How far do we look different from everyone else? It's a real question. I think the truth about the potential that we have is very simple. If we ourselves pursued godliness like Paul instructs Timothy, I believe we would begin to stand out in a way that people who are far away from God would not be attracted to us personally, but they would see in us something winsome and attractive and beautiful and magnificent because it's true, something which pointed them to God, and that would be the way that God changes the world. That is emphatically the way that it happened in Aristides' day. After investigating these four groups and taking a close look at Christians, Aristides sent his letter to the emperor, and there were two bits of advice at the end of the letter. First, Emperor Hadrian, I believe that you should stop persecuting Christians. That's the first bit of the guidance. Secondly, I believe that you personally should become a Christian. 
He wrote that to the emperor. And he wrote it, listen, based on what he observed about the way these people lived their ordinary lives together. And what I want you to understand is that it is entirely within our power to live our lives together in such a way that we ourselves show others what God looks like. Here, I have an excerpt from Aristides' letter, 164. This was written from him to the emperor. Here's how he described Christians. Their oppressors, they appease and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Now, this stood out to him. He saw the way they treated the people who were uh, enemies of theirs and they were good to them in such a way that it actually turned them from enemies into friends. And there was no one else acting like this. And that stood out to him. Uh, here, here he goes on. They love one another. He saw that here are people who love each other. Wouldn't it be good for others to look at us and say, I see what Christians are. They are people who love one another. How so? From widows, they do not turn away their esteem and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. That means if there's a woman who's single because her husband has died or she's all alone, this group of Christians treats people like that with dignity and honor. And that was different because in the ancient world, people like that were considered useless. And so they were relegated to the margins and ignored. That's not how it worked with Christians. And then there are the orphans. In the ancient world, it was socially acceptable to expose Children, and that is a fancy way of saying, if you don't want your baby, you are allowed to leave it in a field so it dies. And that's okay. But the Christians were not okay with that. They went and found children like that and they brought them into their home and they treated them as if they were their own children. And that made them look different. And do you know who that looks like? Please, someone tell me they know who that looks like. It looks like God. That's what this guy saw. He looked at them and he saw something that looked like God. The person who has, he wrote, gives to him who has not without boasting. They share and they don't make a big deal out of it. And back then that was extremely unusual. Here were people who didn't regard everything they had as if it belonged to them. Instead, they gave it away. That looks like God. And Aristides saw that. And that is how Christianity spread. That is how the world changed. It's when men and women did things like this. Listen, when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. What that means is these are people who are having a party. A stranger comes along. They invite him in. And by the end of the party, it looks like they're all brothers and sisters having a great time together. And they're, they're loving it because they don't let family be the only group that they give their love to. And again, that was very unusual. And do you see now how what he's envisioning is godliness? And secondly, this is critical, because otherwise this is meaningless. Do you see how possible it is for us to actually train ourselves to also be worthy of the title godly? Do you see it? If you don't see it, I'm going to get really mad. Do you see it a little bit? Whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. Essentially, Aristides goes on to depict very simply this outstanding quality of life that he sees in this group of people, which in effect is his observation of their godliness. And what the world needs right now is godliness like that. Now, you've all got a card that, that you received when you came in. I want you to get it out because now I'm going to be your wrestling coach, okay? Wrestling. That's a fancy way of saying wrestling. So get your card out. All right, you see it on the one side. It says, what the world needs is godliness. If you turn it over, 
what I've got for you there is a weekly training regiment that you are going to follow Monday through Friday, and this is how you are going to develop the, the, the godliness. You're, you're, some of you are saying, but what about Saturday and Sunday, okay? The weekdays are for godliness. The weekend is for godlessness. Just go wild. <laughs> now, I said that in the first... Uh, service. And then I, I said, I take that back. Let's edit that out of the message. And I was told afterward that right after I said that, the computer crashed. And so this was not recorded in the first service. So we'll see if that happens again. Terrible joke. Be godly on Saturday and Sunday too. But here's how you're going to do it. Monday. You notice this. God is welcoming. That's what God is like. In Romans 15, 7, it says that on your card. Paul writes there, welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. You may not know this. You should. God welcomed you when you were far away from him and God had no reason to welcome you. Not because you were good or believed the right things or had begun to behave the right way, but because he is gracious through and through. That's how God welcomed you in Christ. That's godliness. God did that. And now Paul is teaching that you yourself are also called to be like God by welcoming others in exactly the same way. And so what you're going to do on Monday, tomorrow, is you're going to exercise yourself in godliness by inviting someone. You see that? Invite someone. Now, in whatever way that means for you, maybe you invite someone to coffee, and in that way you welcome them like God welcomed you. Or you invite them into your home. Maybe right now, at the end of the service, you talk to your spouse. Or if you're single, you, you get your calendar out. And you think, who can I invite over and welcome like God welcomed me tomorrow to my home, to my apartment, and I'll prepare a meal for them. And that way, I'll train myself to be godly. That's Monday. You're done with that. You're going to go on to Tuesday. On Tuesday, you're going to keep in mind that God is helpful. Now, this may seem like too small a word for God, but if you were to read through the book of Psalms, for instance, you would see over and over that God is described as Israel's helper. The one who comes to those who are lost and rescues them. The one who reaches out his hand to the people who are sinking and lifts them up out of the mire. He helps them in that way. The one who finds the person who stumbled and can't get up on their own and lifts them to their feet and allows them to stand. God is helpful and you yourself will be like God when on Tuesday you find someone to whom you can, there it is for you, lend a hand. Uh, the passage that is there, 1 Peter 4.10, that is where Peter writes to his uh, community and says, as good stewards, of God's manifold grace, let each one of you serve one another with whatever gift you have received. Uh, Peter knows that all of you have received some gift from God and you received it so you could use it to serve others, to be helpful, to be like God. That's what you're gonna do on Tuesday. So far, the week's going pretty well, right? Whew. <sighs> okay, here comes Wednesday. This is hard. On Wednesday, you're gonna remember that God is forgiving, the passage there in Colossians 3.13, it says, bear with one another, and if any one of you has a complaint against another, let him forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. There it is again. God did this for you. This is what God is like. God is forgiving. You also should forgive. Now you're thinking of someone, right, who hurt you. And I know that some of you right now have people who hurt you so badly, the suggestion that you could forgive them by Wednesday is ludicrous, Okay, it's like me asking you to go uh, learn some advanced chokehold in the ring. Okay, fine, forget about them. Don't forgive them. Let's get a different thing. I'm serious. Find someone else in your life right now, some other thing in your life. Start small, but on Wednesday, you're gonna work at letting something go. 
And when you do that, you're gonna be like God. On Wednesday, you're gonna think of this thing that you've been harboring, this resentment, this hurt, and you are gonna pray and say, God, help me let it go. When you do that, you are gonna look like God. And I'm telling you, it is not too small a thing to hope that when the world around us sees us, what they'll see will be true information about what God is like, and that will help them come to him. We're coming into the home stretch Thursday. On Thursday, you're gonna remember that God is kind. This is one of my all-time favorite sayings of Jesus. In Luke chapter six, he's talking to his disciples about their enemies, and he tells them, you have to be good to your enemies. You will be like the most high. And this is the passage here. For God is gracious and kind to the wicked and ungrateful. Be merciful like your father is merciful. There it is again, Jesus teaching them to think about what God is like and be like that. And so on Thursday, you're gonna be nice to someone who's mean. Does someone else like that? You ever do that? Like someone gives you the finger while you're driving and you smile at them and wave? That's what I'm talking about. It's godly to be kind. And God is kind. And, and what the world needs is communities that are working at godliness. And that is to be welcoming and helpful and forgiving and kind. And then on Friday, you're gonna to come to the most important of them all. And that is that God is loving. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 13, 34, that the new commandment he gave was that they should love one another just as uh, he had loved them. And when they did that, that people would know that he, they were his followers, that they would know God by the way they loved each other. Now, uh, this is the fifth virtue, godliness. Next week and the week after, the next two weeks, these are the weeks when we're gonna dwell on the final two virtues that Peter says support faith. Both of them are about love. Mutual affection and love are gonna be our subjects for the next two weeks. In the meantime, on Friday, you're gonna try your best to do something loving. And then what I promise for you is that next Sunday when we come together, We'll unfold what mutual affection looks like, the love that God calls us to for our friends, and then the week after that, the love that reflects his love most profoundly when we treat each other with the unconditional love that God has called us to. And what happens when we do that is that the world has what it needs, which is godliness. Godliness, which shows others what God looks like so they are free to come to him and experience the transformation that only he can give so that he can change the world through us. It's time for us to get to work. Let me pray now that God will fill us and inspire us so we can. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time to be together and to learn and to grow together. I thank you for every man and every woman, every child in this place. I thank you so much that I get to be in this position at Renaissance Church. I thank you for the work you've given me to do and for the joy and pleasure it is to do with these, with these men and women. I ask very simply that for spending this time together today, our minds would be more clear than they were about what you call us to be and to do in this world. And then I pray simply that you'd use us to draw people to yourself so that every person would be saved, so that every man and woman would know the truth about you. And then in that way, you would transform the world. God, fill us with your spirit now as we continue in worship, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.